Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. There have been like a million books written about Donald Trump in the Trump years. I think that my guest this week, Adam Serwer, has written one of the best of them. It's called The Cruelty is the Point. It's a collection of essays on different themes about the Trump years, about sort of Trump era political mobilization, but really about the deeper roots of the kind of politics we've been living through for the past five years. Uh, we sat down together, you know, we talked about the book, we talked about politics, we talked about sort of some of the changes in the political system from 2016 to 2020. Um, I thought it was really good. I thought it was a really uh, interesting conversation. I think you're going to learn a lot from it. And uh, yeah, check it out. episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. My guest today, Adam Serwer, is a staff writer at The Atlantic. I'm sure you have seen his pieces there, uh, but we are here to talk today about his new book, which is called The Cruelty is the Point. Uh, it's an excellent read. Uh, is much better than the sort of gossipy Trump books. Uh, tries to actually talk about Trump-era politics in a way that, you know, makes sense and has uh, real meaning in the world. Um, so thank you. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Let's start with the basics. It's important to judge a book by its cover. What cruelty is the cruelty? So uh, in the book, I'm, you know, I think everybody is sort of aware of personal cruelty. That is when people are, are simply nasty to other people. And, and, and in particular, Trump excelled at being as nasty as possible, particularly to people who he felt were not doing what he wanted them to do. But, you know, I, I think of cruelty as part of human nature. But what the book is focused on is cruelty as a part of politics, specifically the way that it's used to demonize certain groups so that you can justify denying people their, people their basic rights under the Constitution or exclude them from the political process. And basically my argument about how this works is that this is uh, has a long pedigree in American history stemming from the fact that we are a country that uh, was founded on the idea that all are created equal, but, you know, was founded by slave owners who wrote protections for slavery into the Constitution. And as a result, we periodically have these conflicts over expanding the blessings of American democracy. And typically those conflicts take place along the color line. And, you know, currently our system incentivizes this kind of white identity politics because it allows one party to hold power without winning the majority of the votes. So it becomes more urgent to persuade that one group that they're on the verge of destruction. And so anything they do to prevent that destruction is justified, uh, which is, you know, one of the things that Trump did to, to you know, 
have such a grasp on the conservative imagination was that he appealed very much to their sense of like impending apocalypse as a result of some sort of liberal tyranny and you know as a way of you know getting them to stop worrying about his personal flaws said you know I'm the one who's going to protect you from ultimate destruction and this is sort of how you you know he's not the first person to approach politics this way in American history but this sort of politics is always associated with attempts to disenfranchise rival constituencies or discriminate people against people on the basis of race or religion. And even though Trump is no longer president, you see that kind of politics persisting because they are a product of the racial polarization of the two parties and this system that enhances disproportionately the power of the most conservative elements of the electorate. So something you you talk about in in a couple of these essays that I think um, relates to this this idea specifically of cruelty actually is you you talk about sort of Du Bois's idea of a of a psychological wage of whiteness right which is I don't know exactly how to put it but I mean you know he's he's talking about reconstruction and he's talking about well white workers and black workers material interests could have been aligned um were occasionally in in things like the readjuster movement in Virginia uh but ultimately you know most lower class uh whites in the south go along with the redemption project they decide that that's what they want and what they get out of it is a sort of um a feeling of superiority more than anything particularly concrete and trump is good at dramatizing feelings right like he he's a very he's a very evocative person in a way that transcends the sort of policy specifics of what he does yeah i mean i think and when you look at du bois at the time he is going against the prevailing consensus historical consensus on reconstruction which is that it failed because black people are incapable of self-government du bois and then woodward and franklin and you know their disciples eventually you know, come to this conclusion that Jim Crow was actually contingent on the basis of the formation of a white political identity that excluded black people. And that was not necessarily the way it had to happen. That is, it was something that occurred as a result of a very successful white supremacist political campaign on the part of the Democrats to break this emerging alliance between black and white workers in the South. So someone like Tom Watson, who is like sort of ideologically a progressive, eventually comes to see the wisdom of excluding black or, you know, wisdom and scare quotes of excluding black people from the polity. The way Van Woodward puts it is um, the white men had to unite before they could divide along class lines. So there is this theory that once you got black people out of the polity, then you could deal with, you know, getting white workers what they needed. So there is like a psychological aspect to it. But there are also, you know, if you read books like uh, the author Omar Ali, who wrote specifically about the black populist movement, there are like material class differences that you can use to make like, you know, a traditional Marxian analysis about the differences between the white and black populist in terms of like landowning and economic interests and stuff like that. But the point, at least, that I'm making is that this kind of political identity formation is significant. It has a significant effect on politics. It's not completely divorced from material concerns. Things that people think and do and say do actually matter. And one of the things that Trump did very well was both accelerate this process of the Republican Party, concluding that interfering with democracy was their, rather than winning over democratic constituencies, was their best path to continuing their hold on power. And also that 
they could get away with quite a bit more than they thought they could get away with. Um, and Trump showed them that. I mean, if you remember back in 2012, after Romney lost, there was all this anguish about, you know, self-deportation. And he had like sought Donald Trump's endorsement. And the people who eventually ended up running Donald Trump's campaign had a different theory, which was, you know, Mitt Romney did not do enough white identity politics. So we're going to have a candidate who's going to do that and he's going to win. Wait, and and the I, I don't even know if people remember this, but it was the sort of original official diagnosis uh, of the Republican Party was that Romney had gone too hard against immigration, that he had abandoned a kind of Bush-McCain effort to make a more inclusive brand, that Romney had made a mistake there, and that you needed to sort of pivot back uh, to the older approach. Trump took it in the opposite direction. And I think it's interesting I'm not sure his – I don't even want to call it a policy vision – what he articulated in the 2016 primary at least. It wasn't like obviously different to me from Mitt Romney's, but what he said was very different. Right. I mean, Romney. Romney was not convincing. Right. He's like, I'm severely conservative. Yes, I was the moderate government of Massachusetts who instituted a, an effective state health care plan. And I think government can do good things. And I was in that debate with Ted Kennedy, where I was, where I was like, I don't want to go back to Reagan, <laughs> Reagan Bush. But now I am a true conservative. And my, my argument about Romney is it's always been the constituency he's serving. When he was trying to serve the Republican Party, he was Trumpish. When he was trying to win office in Massachusetts, he was a moderate Republican. And now that he's in Utah, he's a very conservative Republican who is also like pretty skeptical of Trump-style politics, not necessarily Trump-style policy. And what Trump conveyed, right, with that they're sending rapists, they're sending murderers type of stuff, was that he really didn't like immigrants. He was sincere about it. Yeah, that was not a factually accurate description of the immigration situation, but that it was an emotionally honest depiction of how he felt. It's always been the decision when people say Trump is truthful, what they really mean is that he is like, um, he expresses his feelings, not that he's a- he actually like tells the literal truth because he's like a, a very lazy thinker. So he-, he lies a lot because he's not really concerned about whether or not what he's saying is right, which can be very difficult to deal with if you're someone who is not that way, um, which is one reason I think the press had a hard time handling him at first. But yeah, I mean, that willingness to say those horrible things made people feel as though he was incorruptible because he did not adhere to what people thought of at the time as like standard political norms of communication. And therefore, he must have been truly authentic, which is actually not the same thing as being truthful. And I've started to to hear this from people who, um, not people who I know in real life, people I know on the internet, um, who, you know, began skeptical of Trump and came to appreciate him more is that they feel that, you know, the liberal consensus on social issues in kind of like Tony circles is so all-encompassing that like you need somebody who's an asshole like Trump, who sincerely doesn't care what certain kinds of people think of him and that he is going to be able to like make space uh, for their projects on on immigration, on policing and, and various other things like that. And I mean, yeah, he's an asshole, but he's our asshole. Right. And that it takes an asshole. Yeah. Right. That like that's what you need, not just somebody who's going to vaguely sign on to some kind of white paper. I think that there is a substantial amount of the political discourse, particularly on social media, which is just 
um, elites on different parts of the political spectrum yelling at each other about who is a good person. And the actual people who are affected by these policies are sort of an afterthought. You know, they're just like scenery and parts of the debate, but it, but the, the actual stakes for human beings are not really a part of the conversation, which is a frustration, but also it's social media. So, of course, everything's <laughs> stupid. Right. And, you know, I, I was struck by your, your original essay with, with this title because it it both conveyed to me, you know, what I think a lot of people on the left found so repulsive about Trump, right, who, you know, you could always make the case that, like, Trump was less different from other Republican politicians. But, you know, he felt very different to lots of people, both pro and con. And I think that this tendency to sort of flirt overtly with the idea of cruelty and, and to really put that on display, you know, helps explain why reactions to him, pro and con, are so much stronger than they were uh, to sort of the other politicians that that I've seen in my lifetime. Well, to the other Republican politicians that I've seen in my lifetime. I mean, this is what cruelty does is it, it forms lines. It's, you know, on the one hand, like we think of it as like just, you know, sort of an immoral act of unnecessary malice towards another human being, but it really does like help draw lines between different groups of people. And and, and the way, like I, I use this example just because I feel like it's completely depoliticized. But when you think about when you're a kid and like there's a group of cool kids and they're picking on a kid who's kind of nerdy and you're not in either group, you know, maybe you like join in with the cool kids because you don't want them to come after you or you want to feel like you belong or maybe you just like stay away because you don't want to be a target and you stay quiet because you don't want to be a target or, you know, maybe you actually stick up for the kid and you get really fervent about it. But either way, the kids who are teasing the other kid are forming a bond through this like act of transgression and meanness towards another person. They're saying we're us and, and you're them. And I think Trump excelled at creating a feeling of intimacy and community in, in that way with not like the marginal Trump voter, but the people who really subsume their identity in Trumpism as an idea and who like showed up at his rallies and wore his t-shirts and wore his hats every day and like found a measure of satisfaction and the thought that a liberal somewhere would be angry at them for doing this. Okay, let's take a break and I, I, I want to draw out that distinction between sort of marginal and average. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. 
That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. So, you know, one thing that I think people have been talking about a lot over the past couple of months is that in 2020, Trump seems to have gained a, a good amount of support with, particularly with Latino voters, but maybe a, a modest amount with Black voters as well, which, I mean, I think is obviously just a, it's a noteworthy occurrence uh, that people should pay some kind of attention to, but also has been taken by some to sort of debunk the whole line of argument that highlights the role of, of racism and, and racial politics in Trump. Um, your book, you know, really brought me back to 2015, 2016, the sort of, you know, like, how did we get Trump in the first place? You know, and, and I, I sort of wonder what, what do you think about that, about these these 2020 results and the, the discourse that follows from that? It's clear that, you know, whatever Trump was doing in 2020, whether it was, you know, economic support for voters, whether it was Biden doing things like saying we have to get rid of the oil industry in a debate, um, which is not going to be popular along the Rio Grande. I don't think we know the full story of that switch yet, except we know that it's significant and it could be even more significant down the line. I think that it's sort of a cop-out, though, in the sense that it doesn't actually change the nature of what Trump says or does or what he stands for or why he does it. Um, you know, if you go back to like 1932 and, and FDR is winning the black vote in the North because the Republicans aren't doing much for black people and FDR has an economic program that's appealing, even though the Democratic Party is a white supremacist party, uh, you wouldn't say that the Democratic Party ceased being racist in 1932 because FDR got a lot of black votes. That would be stupid. What you would say is that that switch ultimately did have a tremendous impact on the Democratic Party. And it's possible that a more diverse Republican Party will step away from its radicalization against democracy as a result of having to serve a broader constituency. But, you know, it's also possible that those voters begin to identify with the, you know, specific racial by default, but not necessarily entirely exclusively racial, you know, quote unquote, nationalist identity um, and embrace that to the exclusion of other people in the country who are, you know, traditionally have been traditionally excluded from the democratic process like black people. Part of the problem is like the discourse of people of color erases distinctions between non-white groups. And so it makes it sound like it's impossible for black people to have prejudices towards other groups or for, you know, Latinos to have prejudices towards black people. And if you like just look outside of the United States, it is very obvious that that is not the case. Um, so it, it makes perfect sense that those things could also happen here. 
So, I, I mean, I think that you're right. It's a noteworthy development. It's significant. I don't think we totally understand why it happened yet. And it's possible it will have long-term implications for the Republican Party and the Democratic Party. But I don't think it really changes the nature of either what the Republican uh, a party is trying to do to democracy at the moment or, you know, what Trump himself thought of his project in terms of, you know, his racialized view of American citizenship, where he considered some of these people who voted for him as hailing from countries that he, you know, considered, quote, shitholes. And I mean, that's that's where the reaction to the 2020 election is so sort of telling, right? I mean, because the I, I think the broad story we would tell about uh, the racial realignment of the parties was, you know, by the 30s, Black voters in the North feel like Republicans have basically dropped civil rights. Um, FDR has some economic ideas they like. They start voting Democratic. You get a, a Black House Democrat from Chicago. And through incorporation, there starts to be pressure on Democrats to deliver for some of their new voters. Um, that takes a bit of time, but but you start seeing the impact pretty fast, right? I mean, uh, Philip Randolph and the um, fair employment practices during World War II, I mean, that during Roosevelt's administration, you wouldn't say FDR ran a particularly um, uh, racially egalitarian presidency, but he was he was answering to that constituency. Whereas you see, you look at a map, right? I mean, if I wanted to demonstrate that Trump did better uh, with black and Hispanic voters, I mean, I can show you a precinct map of Philadelphia, but his whole election fraud narrative, like it locates the fraud in these African-American cities, right? It, which is like incredible because he did, as you point out, he did better in those places than he did in 2016. And yet he still saw them as illegitimate. And I think that speaks to, I think both of what you're identifying speaks to the significance of identity formation. That like labor civil rights liberalism that emerged in the 1930s has been such a part, it has been the default American liberal identity for so long that everyone forgets that it was contingent and didn't necessarily have to form that way. In the same way that, you know, the South didn't necessarily have to fall to white supremacy in the way that it did, it didn't necessarily have to be the case that the Democratic Party ended up being both a, a pro-labor and pro-civil rights party. And what we're seeing right now is like, despite the fact that Donald Trump won some of those voters over, he still conceives in some sense of those voters is not really, you know, to the extent that they're legitimate parts of the American polity, it is because they supported him, not because they are inherently legitimate the way the rest of his supporters are. And and you don't see real, um, y you know, th there continues to be disagreement among Republicans about various things, but you don't see any faction that's saying like, hey, maybe we should um, cool it on making it harder to vote. No, not at all. Um, right. That like we I, I mean, even just rationally, when I was talking to some Democrats and they were saying, you know, where our coalitions were in 2010, uh, this Supreme Court decision that that came down could have been really bad for us. Um, but actually, you know, the, the coalitions have shifted, but the politics has not moved along with that. There's no, there's no like, here's how we're going to build on, you know, our, our wins be more, you know, Bush 2.0 kind of thing. And, and, you know, I mean, the Republican issue right now is like the border, the border, the border, just like Trump. Right. Not just the border, but this sort of performative punishment of liberal targets with the power of the state, which I think is related to, to, you know, one of the reasons for the rise of Trump was just like this sort of radical social change that we experienced. You know, we're old enough to remember when 
same-sex marriage was not a popular position. Ken Melman said that George W. Bush deli- and, and Karl Rove deliberately like pushed that to get Bush elected, these, these same-sex marriage amendments. And, you know, in 2004, Bush did even better than Donald Trump did with Latinos this time. Um, and he made inroads among Black voters, too. He got over, I think it was like maybe 11 or 12 percent. And, you know, that just seemed like, a you know, that wasn't going to happen. And then all of a sudden there was like this swift change. And then like all of a sudden a majority of Americans are in support of same-sex marriage rights. And, you know, the position that Barack Obama held in 2009 is, like, now considered a bigoted and homophobic position. And I think for people whose, like, religious faith tells them that they have to oppose same-sex marriage, that's, like, extremely scary. And I think Donald Trump very much dug his hands into that and was like, you know, everything's going to change and they're going to, like, destroy your whole way of life. And, you know, you need me to stop them because I'm the only one who can do it. And I think that was really powerful to them. But it's also like that approach to politics is also what says, you know, it's okay to like shatter immigrant families because they're trying to cross the border to get into America to have a better life or to, you know, pass laws targeting trans children or to ban Muslims from coming to the United States or to like pass laws removing like civil liability for driving your car into Black Lives Matter protesters. These acts of cruelty reinforce the kinds of social barriers that help maintain the kind of factionalism that for right now is profitable for Republicans politically because of the structure of our political system. And it has this kind of existential quality, right? There was the the flight whatever election yeah. essay, right? And you look back, I mean, like, what are the, you know, one of the lines in there was the importation of third world foreigners with no traditions of American liberty or whatever. I'm paraphrasing because I don't remember it, but it's just like racist nonsense. Like, obviously, there are a lot of people, immigrants to the United States who are coming from countries that are run by illiberal left-wing regimes, and they do not like socialism. And so, like, socialism sucks is an appealing pitch to them. And, and so, like, it is, like, absolute nonsense, but it is telling in terms of where the Republican elite intelligentsia is that they are still maintaining this, like, bullshit white genocide light stuff, even though it is very clear that this, like, weird genetic determinism that non-white people are automatically left-wing is false. Somehow they make both arguments at the same time where they're like, ha-ha, Trump isn't racist because he won these Latino votes, but also the Democrats are trying to replace us with Latinos who will robotically vote Democratic, and it doesn't make sense. The math is not mathing. Yeah, and, uh, you know, this has become a big uh, Tucker Carlson thing over the past couple of months, that the real assault on democracy is that Democrats favor immigration. Uh, because immigration changes the composition of the electorate. I mean, that is just like straight up reconstruction, you know, early 20th century white man's government stuff. It is such classic old timey racism. And it says a tremendous amount that Tucker Carlson is someone who is feared and respected, despite going on television and saying those things. Right. You just as you say, it's like there's a different kind of a track uh, that you could be on. And then I think, you know, we would be on if the maps were different, right? I mean, if Trump, if you got the exact same share of the vote that Trump did, but what that created was a big, I mean, not huge, but like a a four-point Democratic majority in a unicameral parliamentary system. And like now Joe Biden is just, he's legislating and Republicans are like, ah, shit, we need to get like like a lot more votes than we got last time, then you have a totally different mentality than what we have right now, which is despite getting way fewer votes than Biden, it was a squeaker election. And 
you really are disenfranchising a few thousand people away from being able to win, which, you know, it discourages like rethinking of anything. Right. It discourages rethinking things. They didn't lose by enough to rethink the whole Trump thing. But that's just like, I mean, that scenario you're describing is, is exactly what I'm talking about. It is, it is a product of the system. It is not simply a product of like malice. Like one of the things I talk about, you know, in the book and also, you know, in the piece I wrote for the New York Times that sort of summarizes the themes of the book is that it's not that Democrats are just like, or liberals are like inherently more virtuous or better people. It's that they are reliant on people who are conservative and moderate and liberal. They're reliant on people who go to church every Sunday. And they're also reliant on like, you know, hipsters in Brooklyn. And when you have to like stitch like all these coalitions together of people who are very different, who have very different religious ideological beliefs, who have different ethnic backgrounds, who have different personal histories in this way, like you have to win them over rather than, you know, lock a bunch of people out. If Democrats tried to disenfranchise non-college white voters, they would disenfranchise millions of their voters because they still rely substantially on non-college white men, despite the fact that that demographic votes very heavily Republican. They still get millions and millions of votes from white men who do not have college degrees. That kind of power sharing is what creates the space for democracy without this kind of attempt to exclude entire sections of the country from the polity and to figure out ideological reasons for justifying doing that. Well, you know, plus, I mean, I I feel like one of the big myths that some people propagate is that like liberal people um, live in some kind of bubble. I mean, I'm I'm very out of touch uh, myself personally grew up in New York, live in DC. But even so, it's like, you know, my wife's parents are like, you know, they're older, white, rural Texas people who are much more conservative than me. And she knows them all. And I know them. And she grew up in a small town and in the countryside. And like, it wouldn't, you know, get anywhere, right? Like normal people are not political enough to like, want to disenfranchise large swaths of the population who are like people who they know on a on a human level right but the bulk of republicans actually are totally isolated racially and ethnically and can treat this kind of stuff on a purely abstract or purely kind of tactical basis and you know as you say i mean it's not like you know, you put people in the room, and I'm sure it's like equal assholes uh, everywhere, right? But Democrats' coalition management is just different. And it's more concrete, right? It's like, your life is going to be better in some specific way, rather than people like you will be elevated. I, I, or I, like, at least at its best. There was some Tucker Carlson rant that you were responding, and you made some joke on Twitter where you were like, Tucker Carlson was complaining about higher density zoning because then like (laughs) it would integrate neighborhoods or something it was like and you were like i hope to someday convince conservatives that over regulation of important economic sectors can be counterproductive but it was like literally like these people are going to be in it like we're going to integrate communities and then those communities are going to be left wing and it was like what is going on like what like how are we like doing talking points from george wallace from 1960 like this is insane and I think that, yes, there is a certain amount of, on the one hand, the dynamic for conservatives is like they are more isolated from liberals, I think, than liberals are from conservatives simply as a result of like liberals living in urban areas where despite the fact that, you know, the dominant culture is liberal, there are still lots of conservatives. 
But I think a, another aspect of that is that because pop culture is so default left wing now, that for conservatives, I think it feels suffocating despite them not necessarily coming in contact with very many liberals in the, in the like the actual spaces where they live. I was watching like Indiana Jones and the last crusade like uh, last year during the pandemic. And there's like, you know, you have Dr. Jones, like the older Dr. Jones, and he is like a very observant religious Christian who has his like diary and he prays and he like slaps Indiana Jones when he uses the Lord's name in vain. I was like, when was the last time you saw like a prominent religious conservative academic in like a popular movie like that. You know what I mean? Right. I I thought the same thing when I watched Die Hard uh, last winter, where, you know, there's this whole thing about uh, McLean's wife is using her maiden name professionally. And you just like you wouldn't probably do that in a movie, right? Like it's on the one hand, just like a kind of awesome action movie, but it's also like the like redemption of traditionalist gender roles. He makes it up to his wife by saving her from terrorists. You know, it's like it's 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 sort of like that high school fantasy of like you stopping a mass shooting or something, except it's like an actual movie with Bruce Willis. Yeah. And so he like freezes the pace of shifting gender roles by also defeating the terrorists who are left wing, but their left wing ideology is fake. Obviously, like everybody likes that movie, even if I don't necessarily agree. I, I don't agree with those political messages, but it is unlikely. Everyone loves I think, Die that Hard. You would see that. Right. But you just like, it's true. Like you would not see like conservative themes just like casually dropped into pop culture in that way now. I mean, I think you do. I think it's just that the prevailing pop culture is left wing in like a social sense. Like you don't see the, the specific kind of social conservatism that used to be like pretty prominent in pop culture is not there anymore. And I think this is sort of like, they've sort of used this to talk themselves into feeling politically powerless when actually their political power is like tremendously enhanced relative to their actual numbers, um, which I think also in some ways makes them self-conscious. And just like all of this ends up justifying a politics of like no quarter towards people they feel like are bent on their destruction, who in my view are not bent on their destruction at all. All right, let me take a second break here and then uh, we'll talk about true no quarter politics. So at the beginning of the book, you you talk a fair amount about history and the sort of civil war and uh, post-civil war type politics and sort of develop the argument that we are seeing a kind of a continuation of, of sort of the politics of that spirit. Um, people have gotten really into now arguing about how how history should be taught in the world. I don't actually recall being taught like the Reconstruction era at all in school. But like what what happened there? Like how did we get to Jim Crow? I think you've actually pinpointed something important about this. It was like you wrote that article, you know, The Great Awakening about the sort of increasing liberalism of, you know, college educated white liberals in particular, but the increasing li- racial liberalism of the college educated. Um, and I think basically what happened was that after Ferguson occurred and there was, you know, there was the Justice Department report that showed that the Ferguson Police Department was just like horribly exploiting the city's black population at the behest of the municipal leadership who were like trying to, you know, uh, basically squeeze them for money so that they could fund services for other parts of the town. So I think what happened in Ferguson was that people really began to ask themselves this question, like, how did we elect Barack Obama, but the country is still has this, like, tremendous racial inequality? Like, how did that happen? 
And so I think that sparked a kind of like reexamination of history. And I think it was partially fueled by, you know, like ta quotes in particular in the case for reparations, looking at, you know, that argument not as a question of slavery as, a, or as like a long distance thing, but as like a crucial aspect of the formation of the modern welfare state from which black people w- were significantly excluded. And I think that and like that things like the massacre uh, of the church in South Carolina and then, of course, the rise of Donald Trump is not a neutral event in this. I think it's a tremendously radicalizing event. I think everybody is sort of, how are we, how did we get here? People begin to ask themselves that question. And so they dig into history. And it turns out that there's, I think, a lot to learn about how we got here, in part because the narrative that Barack Obama leaned on to win really excluded a lot of those ugly parts of our history or framed them as like, inevitable liberal triumphs of the best ideas of the American founders, which politically is like a very effective narrative, right? But the job of politicians is not to give the most accurate reading on American history or racism or anything else. It's to win power and use that power to help their constituents. So Barack Obama's triumphalist narrative, particularly coming from him, was very effective politically, but it obscured this a whole other part of history that I think people wanted to dig into in part because they wanted to figure out how we were still having these problems after all this time and after something, you know, like the election of the first black president. Well, and and I think there was this sort of duality to Obama's symbolic meaning, right? Where there was, I mean, there was a group of people who were just incredibly terrified of Obama all along, right? You know, Bill Ayers secretly wrote the memo, uh, his books, you know, all, all that stuff, right? But there was a group of people who I think thought that Obama winning should be the expiation of America's um sins, right? And that now, you know, all all should be forgiven, right? And that like part of the case for Obama might be, well, he was going to make healthcare more affordable. Or part of the case might be, you know, you were tired of the Iraq war. Uh, but part of the case was going to be, well, once we have this black president, then obviously like people won't be able to complain about racism anymore. Right. And then you have another group of people for whom it's like, no, like representation at the highest levels of government is going to raise our aspirations. Right. Things we've been talking about for a long time are going to be heard that like Barack and Michelle, like they know personally these struggles and they, and, and then that's why something like if I had a son, he would look like Trayvon, I think was such a, big deal. It was that and it was the Henry Louis Gates thing when he got arrested and Obama said the cop acted stupidly and he did act stupidly. That was a contempt of cop situation. And this is like, you know, contempt of cop is like a, you know, it goes back, like people were complaining about contempt of cop in like the 19th century. You know what I mean? Like it, it is just like, it just has a long history of like, of Americans annoying a police officer and him arresting them for no reason. But when Barack Obama said it, it immediately became this like, you know, <laughs> Barack Obama is starting the race war. Um, he's trying to crush the white man. And Obama tried to defuse it with, you know, the whole beer summit thing. I think that was, I mean, obviously the, the Trayvon thing is like a, a important and like a subsequent aspect of this, not least of which because it's after that that the phrase Black Lives Matter is coined. But the big turning point for me, at least, is that when a lot of white conservatives realize that Obama is not simply a symbol of American racial progress, but is actually a person with opinions, and some of those opinions are like, you shouldn't arrest a black man in his own home because uh, he disrespects a police officer. Uh, 
you know, they just went apeshit. I mean, if you go back and you, you read the stuff that conservative media was writing at that time about that incident, it's absolutely insane, especially for people who profess to believe um, in an ideology of limited government and, and individual freedom and like the importance of private property. You know, I could go on about this for a long time, but it's obvious that in this era of American politics, white identity supersedes all those things as far as like ideological importance. Well, and, and to me, you know, it helps understand the sort of the swing, right, from Obama to Trump, which I think a lot of, um, I, I mean, I think frankly, like a lot of white liberals found shocking in a way that African Americans didn't necessarily. But, but is that, yeah, I mean, I remember it's like my, my neighbor said to me, like, you know, I, I see people on, on TV talking like there's never been a racist politician before, you know, which I, I think carries some insight. But it's that I think to liberals, Obama's election was this incredible sign of progress, but that to some more moderate people, Obama's election was supposed to be like the end of racism. Right. It was like the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act. You know, why are there riots? We just gave you everything you wanted. Shut up. Right. And so and so there was, I, I think, like a more vicious backlash to like, oh, you got a black president and now you still want, you know, the college professor to not be arrested in his house. You still want this guy to not be shot by the cops. Like, like, what what do you want from me? And, you know, that helps sort of spur a kind of backlash politics when at the moment, right, like, you know, Inauguration Day 2009 was like a pretty good vibes moment for America. I mean, it always comes back to me to the fact that it was 2011 when, you know, this Bertha thing was happening and Donald Trump is like, I'm going to lean into this as hard as possible. And I think, you know, I, I write about this in the book, but I think Bertherism is a really important, it's sort of a, it, it's a dumb racist conspiracy theory, but I think it's a, an important moment of ideological formation because it's sort of the Trump platform. He's like, you know, Barack Obama is an illegit illegitimate president because he's black and he's a secret Muslim and he was born elsewhere. So he's like, he symbolizes both the sort of Islamophobia of the moment or anti-Muslim politics of the moment. He symbolizes, you know, he, he is, he is the, the son of an immigrant and he's black. And so he, he like wraps up all these like strains of fear that Donald Trump makes centerpieces of his 2016 campaign deliberately. I don't think. Donald Trump's uh, improvements uh, with the Latino vote, although significant, actually erase the fact of that or why that happened. There was all this um, hope, I think, among like more establishment Republicans uh, that Trump was going to lose the primary. And they hoped that for various reasons. Uh, but one reason they wanted to beat him was that they felt he was not that actually like well-versed in their doctrines. I don't think that like most Republican voters sincerely believe that Barack Obama was born in Kenya. Um, but they do think it's funny, right? Like it's a funny thing to say. And that it's funny to get people saying, oh, that's racist. And then but like Trump doesn't care that you think it's racist, right? And that that was ultimately um, more compelling to like the majority of primary voters than like Jeb Bush's, you know, studies at the American Enterprise Institute about marginal tax rates. And I think the primary is like a fun time capsule because you can go back and you can find like people who later became ardent, fierce pro-Trump sycophants 
saying things like Donald Trump is a racist. And, you know, what are, are we just about white identity politics now? Is that all the Republican Party is? And then like, you know, 10 months later, all their audiences and voters want them to say Donald Trump is fucking awesome. And they're all saying it. And it's like they never it's like. I, I frequently get criticisms from conservatives about me being unfair, but they were actually saying the same things about Donald Trump. They're the ones who changed their minds. I didn't change my mind. I, I you know, we were in agreement in 2015. It was just that he became the nominee and you guys had to change because your subscribers, your audiences, your viewers, your voters decided that they like Donald Trump. So now you have to like Donald Trump. And you sort of, you figured out a way to like tell yourself that that was good and not bad. Right. And, you know, and, and mostly by, I mean, themselves coming to buy into this kind of, um, existential politics, right? Where it like, it no longer matters to a lot of conservative intellectuals. Like, are we formulating a policy agenda that makes sense? Like, does this align with some principle that I believe in? And it's rather that, you know, the progressives are so terrifying that it's like by any means necessary. And this is, this is the means that we have at hand. Um, you know, and to me from, I don't know, inside the progressive zone, it, it just like, it seems so farcical, you know? So I, I've been living in, in Washington DC for a long time, uh, where you grew up. Um, obviously we, we don't have any Republicans here, but one thing you see in politics without Republicans is that like, we still do have, um, business owners. And, you know, who don't like regulations. And we have rich people who don't want to pay taxes. And we have religious people who have traditionalist attitudes toward things. And we have a police union. And sometimes we end up on good policies and sometimes on bad policies. But like we have the basic give and take of American politics absolutely exists within a one-party city. There's no steamroller that, like, crushes all opposition in its path, uh, because these are actually, like... I mean, I don't know. You could you go to the Bahamas and there's conservative politics there just in a country where everybody's black because these are like the building blocks of a functioning human society. Uh, but actual American conservatives have like no confidence in their ability uh, to like exist in a pluralistic context. I think that's right. And it irritates me because obviously, like on social media, you can find a whole lot of liberal fantasizing about that, but you are actually never getting rid of conservatives. Like, ever. Like, you are never going to get rid of people who have conservative views on immigration. You are never going to get rid of people who um, are very conservative in their religious observance and adhere very closely to, you know, the strictures of their faith in such a way that, you know, contradicts liberal social mores. Like, you're never getting rid of people who want to pay fewer taxes. Like, that's just never happening. So, to me, that is what makes this Republican assault on, on democracy all the more enraging because it's like they just don't want to have to compete with people who are different rather than like acknowledging that their politics do have an appeal. You know, there's a, a probably a significant chunk of uh, black America that, that votes for the Democratic Party now that would probably vote for the Republican Party if the Republican Party wasn't so rooted at this point in time in white identity politics. Yeah. And I mean, I think um, Ismail White's book shows, you know, that on, on policy issues, probably the marginal black voter um, is to the right of the marginal white voter. I mean, not average, but marginal for exactly that reason, right? That white people 
tend to default into the Republican Party and Black people to be repulsed from it. Uh, because, you know, because these identity issues are important to a lot of people's lives. But like... Look, maybe you agree that like we should have stricter immigration policies, but you're not going to vote for someone who doesn't think that you should be allowed to vote. Right. Or, yeah, I mean, all this stuff. Right. It, it's it's very, uh, well, it's a frustrating dynamic. But, you know, it, it does come back to this idea that, you know, we, we do have templates for complete disenfranchisement um, of, of swaths of the population that unlike eliminating religion or business or aversion to taxes, like a real thing that happened in most of the country was no black people were voting for several generations. This is like what I try to tell. I mean, my grandfather couldn't vote and most of the country was fine with that. That's just like until he moved to New York, you know, he couldn't vote. And that was just how the country was run. And most people went about their business. And like, that was just fine with for them. Um, and like, what I always tell people is like, our, this like experiment in multiracial democracy that we've been doing is like, you know, it started in 1965. It's fragile. It doesn't have to persist. Most of our history, you know, in the revolutionary era, you know, even free black people are being excluded from the ballot. You know, in the Reconstruction era, like Democrats are like part of the reason the 15th Amendment happens is because Democrats are like, well, it's not part of the reason why it happens. But there is this period where Democrats are like, you don't even let black people vote in your Republican states. Like, why are you forcing black suffrage on us? And so like this this issue of hypocrisy becomes like a talking point against universal black suffrage. We have actually had. Um, periods in which large sections of the American polity have been excluded on the basis of, of race. We have not had a period where conservatives were like annihilated out of existence and and simply led to oblivion and like no longer existed, existed for any period of time. It just has not happened. It's not going to happen. And it exists as a mode of politics in order to justify doing the thing that has actually happened. And, and I think, you know, learning that history is interesting. I mean, I feel like I grew up with a sort of of a vague sense of like continuous upward progress in American history, which is just not, I mean, I don't think anybody even like explicitly said that to me, that just like every five years was better than five years previously. Uh, but like, it's very much not true. There was a real stab at an egalitarian participatory democracy. There was like the Civil War led to a kind of, you know, awakening among the Northern white population, which before the war, you know, wanted to exclude slavery from the West, but was really not bought in to abolition. That was the talking rights. point against Republicans. Right. Like they want social equality and they're like, social equality? Wait, that's crazy. And obviously, like there are some people like Thaddeus Stevens who quietly are like, yeah, that's social equality quality thing is where this is going. And that would be right. good. But most of the time, they're like, no, no, political equality is not social equality. Like, that's not yeah. what we mean. And I think the war, you know, you could see for for like for Ulysses Grant, but for a lot of other people was sort of radicalizing. Right. And so, as you say, right, they adopt the 15th Amendment, which had not been the practice in the North previously. Right. They go further. Um, but then, you know, there's a significant retrenchment. And, you know, it's like, it's hard to say that the moral arc of the universe is like actually bending in any particular direction. Uh, we, we just sort of got to a happier point uh, in the recent past. I think that, you know, I, uh, growing up in Washington, D.C., back before woke was primarily a white pejorative for unnecessary 
egalitarianism I had what might be described as a woke education. And all I mean by that is I went to an overwhelmingly black public school where I was actually taught black history, which was not taught everywhere in the United States. And so I like, I remember we did Raisin in the Sun, you know, my junior year of high school. And so we learned all about restrictive covenants and we learned about the Supreme Court cases that struck down restrictive covenants because Lorraine Hansberry had actually written the play about her dad, who was part of a case that struck down restrictive covenants. And like, he died and she was like, he died of racism. And he was like a relatively, he was a real estate guy. He was extraordinarily wealthy for a black person at that time. And so, you know, I was educated about these things. When I got to college, I knew a lot. I like, I I went to Vassar. I met a lot of Manhattan prep school kids for the first time who had not, did not have that kind of history, not because their teachers were bad people, but because like where I was, it was considered important to make sure that black children understood their own history in a way that it was not prioritized in other parts of the country. And, you know, to the extent we're having this debate, you know, there's a lot of back and forth about, like, as you've highlighted in your newsletter in these, like, DI training and stuff that's, like, pretty stupid and counterproductive. But I think, ultimately, you know, the debate that we're having is about whether or not to teach this history and how accurately to teach it, because it necessarily changes your perception of the present. If you don't know about convict leasing, then the idea that black people are simply poor because they're dumber than white people might actually seem persuasive to you as a white person. But if you do know about all the economic dispossession that took place under Jim Crow and like on and on and on into the 20th century, um, then necessarily your understanding of racial inequality in America and, you know, what the state can do about it becomes different. And I think that's really what we're arguing about when we argue about like, in this current conversation about American history, that's really sort of the actual conversation that we're having. Um, even though we spend most of our time in the meta conversation of like, this person said something outrageous, this person said th- something stupid, look at this idiotic chart that someone made. How can ro- white fragility be the number one top selling book in the country, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. I mean, and it's interesting because we don't have a, um, I don't know, like if this was France, we would have like a very organized conversation about like what should be in the national curriculum but we don't have that in america so we can have a very sort of diffuse um you know kind of discussion about these things that has no um i don't know that i think tends not to be not to be tethered to specifics right um you know whereas i you know i looked up i mean my my kids in uh he just finished kindergarten, so you know he he didn't get a lot of super rigorous history instruction. Uh, but you know, I was able to look up like what are the Washington D.C. social studies guidelines, right? Like in a definitive way, and and I read them, and you know they seem good to me. Um, I'm I'm all for it. Um, but actually, it's like if we had education in a more focused way, then you know we could sort of talk about like what's in and what's out, and like what's on the AP test and what isn't. Uh, and why we think it's important to sort of have this stuff in there. You know, because I think some some conservatives think that it's like, well, progressives just want to teach this history because like because they hate America and they want, you know, they want people to see that it's that it's bad. Um, and I'm sure somebody does think that. But, you know, I think people want kids to understand like how we got to where we are. Right. I mean, that's, that's what you're saying, really. Right. And it's, it's easy, I guess, if you're 
white and you live in a very segregated, you know, exurb somewhere to think it's like, well, it's not important, right, for people to have any sort of context or understanding, um, you know, of poverty or segregation or where any of these things come from you know this stuff didn't make it into the book but i have written a little bit about this but like this conflict that you're talking about is you know it's not actually the first time we've even had it there's a book called um school book nation by joseph moreau that gives like a very a a wonderful accounting of john hope franklin writes uh an american history textbook for school kids and it becomes this huge flashpoint in california because of california's influence on buying school books. And it is the same argument that we're having today about whether or not the book, because it uh, has much more of an emphasis on Black history and is much more matter of fact about the actions of the founders, both towards Black people and Native Americans. It is like the, the, the argument, like, are we going to teach our kids to hate America? Are we going to teach our kids like patriotic education that teaches them pride in their history? Um, and this textbook is too pessimistic about America and about our past and the extent to which the founders diverged from, you know, their professed beliefs. Um, and it's the same. The politics are slightly different because we're in a different era, but it really is the same type of argument. The echoes are remarkably strong. Rick Perlstein has written about this as well. But, I, you know, I think this is, this is absolutely not the first time that we've had these arguments about the meaning of history. And obviously, there's sort of arguments about the present, but they're ultimately arguments about are we living in a just society or one that has been warped by the bad acts of the past? And, you know, there are political interests in both directions. Well, and also about who counts in the community. Yeah. Right. I mean, I was at the the Carter Woodson house, uh, which is now open is in my my neighborhood. This is one of the sort of pioneering uh black history scholars. Um, you know, and as I understand it, I mean part of the point of his project, it wasn't that he like wanted people to think bad things about America, but he wanted people to have a, a better understanding of their community, right? And that they were being written out of. People were in effect doing white history of America, right? So they would say, oh, well, this is like an optimistic, whatever, whatever story, but like it's it's not, right? It's totally exclusionary. And, you know, highlighting other stuff, it looks like trying to tear the country down only if you have a very particular um, sense of what the country, you know, really is and who its constituents are. Yeah, I mean, all of this, I think, and I think this is part of the point of the book, is that we've been having these arguments about what America is supposed to be since the founding. People like Thomas Jefferson <laughs> argued both sides of the argument. Both of them are authentic expressions of the American idea, which is why they're both so persistent in American history. Um, and so I, I think it's like hard for the argument to be settled exactly. But it, it makes sense to me that we're talking so much about history now as a result of the events of the past decade or so. I don't know if it's going to continue to be such a centerpiece of our politics, but it's not unusual that we're arguing about this. Obviously, after Reconstruction, you have the Dunning School and you have this attempt to like smear Reconstruction as like, you know, quote unquote, Negro tyranny or Negro domination. um, And that like shapes Americans' perceptions of Jim Crow. And then during the civil rights movement, you know, work by people like Woodward 
who Martin Luther King called it the Bible of the civil rights movement. This is important for reshaping perceptions around, you know, what America can be and what the South can be. And it makes perfect sense that people who don't want America to be the thing that these people want would, like, contest that not solely in the realm of values or logic or policy, but also in their understanding of history. Awesome. Adam Sherwer, it's a great book. I hope that we will uh, continue debating history long enough for everybody to uh, buy it, uh, read it, ideally. But the, but the most important thing is to buy books, I always, I always want to emphasize that as, as the author of several. Reading is fine, but you can, you can listen to podcasts. Thank you, and uh, good luck with all the promotions. Thanks so much, Matt. Okay, so thanks as always to our sponsors, our producer, Eric Janikas, and the Weeds will be back on Tuesday. <laughs>